It is uh, my pleasure to be able to bring the Word of God this morning. Um, Pastor Jeff is um, out of town. He's uh, visiting the Master's Seminary, as well as uh, having an opportunity to see his uh, daughter at college. So we wanted to give him that opportunity, and then I get to preach, <laughs> and uh, which is, uh, is uh, no downer for me. I love to preach. And um, as you well, we're, uh, are well aware, we are um, in a series that has begun a few weeks back on the, the book of Hebrews. And uh, this is, uh, I would say, a corollary to that, um, that text. I'm not going to preach from Hebrews, but I'm going to preach uh, from a text upon which Hebrews is based. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, open them to the book of Leviticus. No, wait, 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 don't go anywhere. Where, where are you going? Now sit back down. Leviticus does get kind of a bad rap in the church. Um, and there are, I'm sure, numerous other books in the Bible that Christians might think um, would be more profitable for us to, uh, to read through and study through than the book of Leviticus. Um, on the surface, Leviticus uh, seems to be um, of little importance to our lives as 21st century Christians. Um, even for a believer, maybe you are one of those... Uh, folks who at the beginning of the year said, I want to read through the Bible in a year. And so you started reading from Genesis, you started going, you got to Exodus, man, this is pretty good, this is, this is, some, this is some good story plot here, and then uh, all of a sudden, all of your uh, endeavor just kind of slowed to a halt when you got to the book of Leviticus, and you started wading through... Um, the thick of the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the copious laws about skin diseases and dietary laws and uh, bodily discharges. Yeah, that's, 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 that, that will slow down your Bible reading plan. I, I, I understand. There's nothing new about this. This is, I, I understand. Leviticus has been called by one writer the most neglected of the neglected biblical books. For good reason. It is neglected. By the way, it's not, it, interestingly enough, it's not neglected in Judaism. In, in Judaism, um, young men began their study of, the, book, of, of, of the, the Hebrew Bible with Leviticus. It was that important to them. Okay, so they see something in the book of Leviticus that I think we don't. And I think um, all of this, uh, this tendency to avoid Leviticus is, um, is, is really... It's really an, an unfortunate plight for this book because I think um, if you haven't read Leviticus or you don't really care as much about what it has to say, I think you're, real sing, you're missing out on one of the gems of the Bible. You really are. You don't believe me? <laughs> you really are. I've been teaching through Leviticus in the uh, equipping class at 9 a.m. for... Um, Roughly 10 months. And uh, I and everybody in that class, I'm assuming, I'll speak for them even though I might misrepresent them, but <laughs> uh, I'll speak for them and say, um, we've been in there for 10 months. We're in chapter 20. We just finished chapter 20. And, um, and we haven't begun to exhaust the depths of what is in this book. It is truly a well that you will never reach the bottom of. I mean, just consider some of the accolades that has, have been given uh, for this book. Mark Rooker writes, At no point 
For many Christians, does the Bible appear more mysterious and seemingly irrelevant than when it focuses on the temple and the sacrificial system? But the truths found in these texts and what they foreshadow must be grasped if the New Testament teaching is to be considered and understood. According to Knight, this temptation to ignore Leviticus was even true of our Savior's experience. One of the satanic temptations Jesus underwent at the beginning of his ministry was to accept the innuendo that his task was merely to preach the gospel, heal the sick, feed the hungry, but at the same time to turn his back on the book of Leviticus. It behooves the New Testament believer to give more attention to this book for we base our eternal destinies on the one of whom Leviticus loudly speaks. And R.K. Harrison, another writer, says this about Leviticus. Leviticus is thus a work of towering spirituality. Towering spirituality which through the various sacrificial rituals points the reader unerringly to the atoning death of Jesus, our great high priest. An eminent 19th century writer once described Leviticus quite correctly as the seedbed of New Testament theology. For in this book it is to be found the basis of Christian faith and doctrine. The epistle of the Hebrews, or to the Hebrews, expounds Leviticus in this connection and therefore merits careful study in its own right, since it, in, the, in the view of the present writer, it is, the pre, it is preeminent as a commentary on Leviticus, which is to say, we're going through the book of Leviticus in a, in a sermon series that will last, yes, <laughs> I don't know how long it will last, but we'll be in it for a while. It's an important book for us as a church. But if we don't grasp Leviticus, we will not grasp Hebrews. And when you consider the fact that a third of your New Testament is either a quotation or an allusion to the Old Testament, we cannot begin to to overestimate the, the, the value of studying the Old Testament, particularly the most neglected of the neglected books of the Old Testament. And what these writers that I just quoted reveal is that you cannot understand the message of the New Testament without properly understanding the book of Leviticus. It's that, it's that important. And a lot of New Testament believers and even preachers will balk at the idea of spending too much time in the Old Testament, especially in the book uh, like Leviticus, because they... Feel it's a waste of time. It's like moving backwards. Why would we go back to the old? We have the new. A few months ago, um, I guess earlier this year, Andy Stanley caused quite a controversy. He made the assertion that the Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. And um, I won't go into detail on all of what he said, but I think that sentiment is appealing to a lot of us. And I think first because it makes our life easier. We, there's not as much to read, there's not as much to study, there's not as much to understand. We just stick to understanding the last quarter of, of the Bible. That's a lot better than all of it, right? And so it's easier. But I think uh, second, because we really don't understand the relevance that the Old Testament has to the Christian life anymore. I don't think we see it as relevant anymore. The Apostle Paul didn't see it that way, though. 
Remember what he wrote to his, uh, his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. We could even say it together. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The all Scripture that Paul is referring to is none other than the Old Testament Scriptures, which is what they had at the time. All Scripture is profitable. It's profitable. What is it profitable for? It's profitable for doctrine. That is teaching, truth, about who God is, who man is, what sin is, what man's problem is, sin and the solution to the problem, salvation. The Old Testament is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It convicts us when we sin and it reproves us and then corrects us. That is, it brings us back after we've sinned. And it's also profitable for teaching us and training us in righteousness. That is, it teaches us and and shows us how that we can live a life pleasing to God. That's the Old Testament. And the end result, Paul says, is that we are, as believers, complete and fully equipped, fully furnished. The idea is of, of of a ship that's about to make a long voyage and you don't want to run out of supplies And how do you guarantee that you don't run out of the supplies? You know this. This is able to make you fully furnished for the voyage from now to the end. Do you want to be a fully furnished Christian? Do you want to be ready for every good work? Then you need to to understand the book of Leviticus. Sorry. (laughs) We need to understand this book. Leviticus falls in the center of of, of what we call the... The, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and it has a rather straightforward message. God is absolutely holy, and in order for God to dwell among his people and in order for his people to live out the purpose that he has for them, they must be holy just as he is holy. So really, the, the book of Leviticus sets out the, the practices, the procedures, and the attitudes that are necessary to ensure that God's people remain distinct from the world and loyal to him. That's what he wants for his people. To be separate from the world, loyal to him so that they can be a light to the world and draw all nations to God. That was the purpose of Israel in the old and guess what? That's the purpose of the church in the new. God's people are called to be distinct, called to be holy. And Israel was too. The first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus set out um, the sacrificial system. This was the system by which the everyday Israelite could maintain his daily relationship with God. God recognized that uh, man was a sinner. He recognized that sin was a reality of life in a fallen world. So he established a way for sinful man to maintain a relationship to be forgiven when they sinned, to be accepted before him, to come into his presence and find acceptance and fellowship. And then in chapters 8 through 10, we see the inauguration of the priesthood. The priesthood made the whole sacrificial system possible. Because even though the worshiper 
was heavily involved in the sacrificial system. They chose the animal. They selected it. They brought it to the tabernacle. They slaughtered it. They skinned it. They, they quartered it, and they handed it all to the priest. They couldn't actually make the sacrifice. They couldn't put the animal on the altar. They had to be represented by somebody who was divinely ordained to do that, to be a mediator between God and man, and that was the priesthood. You cannot have a relationship with God without a mediator. And the priesthood was that mediator. And so in chapters 8 through 10, you see the inauguration of this priesthood that makes the whole thing possible for God to be with his people. And then in chapters 11 through 15, is what we call the purity laws. These really outline how an Israelite, just an everyday Israelite, is to remain ritually pure so that they could participate in the corporate worship of of God at the tabernacle, so that they could come and worship and present their offerings and be corporately involved. And so what what the purity laws did is they oriented everyday life decisions of what am I going to do here and how am I going to do here and what, what I do has an effect on me and my ability to take part in covenant life. And so the purity lives were very important. They'd made you make decisions about what was most important for that day. If I do this, I will not be clean and I cannot worship at the temple. So I, I, have, to, I have to think about this. And then chapter 17 through 27, we find the holiness laws. These are laws that spelled out how Israel was to live so that they could be a holy people, distinct from the world, and characterized by loyalty and allegiance to God and love for each other. And at the center of this book, really the the hinge pin that holds the whole book together, is chapter 16, which outlines what we know as the Day of Atonement. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. So turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Everything that precedes chapter 16 in Leviticus, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the purity laws, they all anticipate this one chapter. They all look forward to this one event that chapter 16 is going to describe. And everything that comes after it, all of the holiness laws, all the laws that talk about how you, how you show your allegiance and your love for God by remaining distinct from the world and loving each other, all of that finds its motivation and its spiritual energy coming out of the event that happens on this day, on the Day of Atonement. It was the most important day of the year in the life of Israel because it outlined how God had graciously provided a way for his people to enjoy complete atonement for their sins and access to his presence. Put another way, without the day of atonement, God could not dwell with his people and his people could never enjoy access to him. They could never enter into his presence. So the Day of Atonement is about entering into the presence of God. It's about having fellowship with Him. It's about having Him dwell among His people and continue to dwell among His people even though His people are a sinful people. That's what the Day of Atonement is all about. And this chapter has incredible implications for New Testament Christianity. In fact, I I will assert that the Day of Atonement 
as outlined in Leviticus 16, provides for us a full-on picture of the gospel. It does. And how the life and death of Jesus Christ has gained us a kind of access to God that no Old Testament saint ever enjoyed what we enjoy as far as access to God. No, no Old Testament saint. So what you see here, it really is a shadow of what we enjoy. That's why it's so important. And, and the book of Hebrews that we're going through so recognizes the immense importance that Leviticus holds, Leviticus 16 in particular, that it devotes four whole chapters, chapters 7 through 10, to expounding this text and explaining its significance in terms of Christ and what he has done in his death. Four whole chapters. So that's why if we, if we understand chapter 16 of Leviticus, we will understand um, part of the bulk of, of the book of Hebrews. That's why we're doing this work now. So I've outlined our, our text in this way. I want to give, I want to give you um, four truths revealed in Leviticus 16 about what it means to enter into the presence of God. Remember, that's what this chapter is about. Entering into the presence of God. What does it take to enter into his presence? Here's four truths. Number one, entering God's presence cannot be done lightly. Cannot be done lightly. Look at verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy, uh, holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is in the, on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So the background to what is taking place, the historical context for this, it goes all the way back to chapter 10. If you remember, chapter 8 through 10, I said, was the inauguration of the priesthood, which was a seven-day process in which seven uh, series of sacrifices were given that set apart and made the priesthood distinct from all the peoples. They had inaugurated them as, as priests who were able to mediate between the people and God. And on the last day, they're finally priests, they're finally able to take over for what Moses has been doing, being a mediator. And we find on chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, Nadab and Abihu, the two eldest sons of Moses, took their fire pans, took the initiative upon themselves, did something that God did not instruct them to do, and they entered into God's presence with strange fire, the text says, and fire came out and consumed them, and they died right there in front of everybody. You can imagine that's quite the shock. That's the context. So he says, in light of that event, God says to Moses, tell Aaron, you can't just be going into the holy place any time that you want. Why? What does it say? Verse 2. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Because in the tabernacle complex, you had a wall that separated the tabernacle from the outside upon, out, uh, around which all of the 12 tribes of Israel encamped. You had this wall that separated it, and there was a courtyard in which was the, uh, the, the bronze altar upon which the, the offerings, the burnt offerings were, altered, were, were, uh, were given. And then you had this 
this tent, what's called the tent of meeting, and that is where God met with his people. That's where his presence resided, and there was an, an inner area, and then inside that, it was called the holy place, and then inside that, there was a curtain almost that went from the floor to the ceiling and wrapped over the top, and inside that area was, was the most holy place on earth because it's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid, which was called the mercy seat, the place where atonement was made. And it was, it was a lid that was pure gold. It had cherubim that were, that were uh, um, molded into the top of it. And, and God was said to be enthroned over the cherubim. So you can think of it this way. God is the king of Israel, and the ark is his footstool. And he sits ruling over Israel from that point. So to enter into the most holy place is to enter into the throne room of God. God manifests his presence in a, in a cloud that obscures his holiness because sinful man cannot gaze upon the holiness of God and live. We see that even in Exodus 33. You remember when, when Moses wanted to see God's glory and he says, uh, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live, right? And so here's the deal. Entering into God's presence means entering into the presence of his holiness. And that's a very dangerous thing. As we find out from Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, that can kill you. So it makes you sober up, right? It, it makes you realize this is serious business. And so he does not want that to happen to Aaron, the high priest. And so he says, tell Aaron, he can't just come in whenever he wants. Instead, we're going to find out it's once a year he is allowed behind the veil, but not without immense precautions that we'll see in a minute. Nadab and Abihu died because they did not treat God as holy. Leviticus 10.3, uh, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those whom are, uh, who, who are near me, that is the priests, I will be sanctified. He said, I will be treated as holy. And if they will not treat me as holy, I will show myself to be holy. And that's exactly what he did with Nadab and Abihu. So the principle here is, is God's holiness is dangerous. So entering into the presence of God cannot be done lightly. It takes serious thought, and you have to be sober-minded to do it. So Aaron is being called to be careful. He's being called, don't take the initiative, follow the lead of the Lord. The Lord determines who can and when they can enter into his presence. And that leads us to a second truth, starting in verse 3. Entering into God's presence cannot be done lightly, and entering God's presence requires careful preparation. Careful preparation. Because it's dangerous, right? You have to think through this. And so he says in verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bowl from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So first, before Aaron can, um, 
can enter in, he has to to take care of his own sin. He has to recognize the fact that he is a sinner. And he has to deal with the Lord as a sinner and a holy God before he can do anything else. And then verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen coat, he shall have the linen undergarments on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments, and he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So before he can even go in, he has to prepare himself. Now, back in chapter 8, he was dressed in incredibly beautiful clothing, clothing that set him apart specifically as the high priest. You can go back and you can look at what that clothing looked like. But he had a tunic that he wore. He had a, a, a specific breastplate that had in, uh, embedded in it uh, 12 ge- uh, gems that were representative of all the 12 tribes. He had uh, uh, kind of gold uh, medallions uh, that, that had inscribed on them the 12 names of the 12 tribes. So he was set apart as a unique representative of the people to God so that when he went into the holy place to meet with God into the first part, not into the second part, but just into the first part, when he's going in to meet with God, he's representing the entire nation. He is their one highest mediator. But that's not the clothing he puts on here. He's got to take off those garments and he's going to put on these meager linen garments. Something that reflects the fact that he, though the high priest, recognizes he is a lowly sinner just like everybody else. He's got to prepare himself. He's got to wash his body, which is symbolic of the fact that he needs to be cleansed. And then he's got to put on these humble garments before he can enter into the presence. But he can't just come. He's got to also come with his own sacrifices because he's a sinner. And then finally, in verse 5, she'll take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So he's got to deal with himself before he can actually represent the people. It takes preparation. But there's, a, there's another principle that comes out of this, and I'm wanting to continue to add these in our minds as we're getting, uh, getting through this text. We saw that um, God's presence can be dangerous. That was a principle that developed. But this principle is not just anyone can enter God's presence. Only a divinely ordained representative could act as a mediator between God and the people, and that is the high priest. There's only one person that this, that this chapter is written to. Tell who? Aaron. Sinful man requires a mediator between him and God. He cannot just approach a holy God on his own, or he will be destroyed. And so it's not just anybody. Man has to be represented by somebody that God has chosen. But even that individual, as we see here, Aaron, the high priest, has to prepare himself, has to reflect upon and show that he's reflected upon his own depravity, even if what he wears and what he brings as he comes before the Lord. And that leads us into, really, the day of atonement itself, beginning in verse 6. And we see here a third truth 
about entering the presence of, of God. Entering God's presence requires full atonement. Beginning in verse 6 and running all the way through verse 28, we have the Day of Atonement ritual, procedure. And we're not going to look at everything in, in detail. You can breathe easy. But in, in ch- chapter uh, 16, verses 6 through 10, we have this, this overview that then gets into more detail beginning in verse 11 through, through 28. The overview basically is this, that Aaron has to select a sin offering for himself and a burnt offering for himself. And then he, he also selects a, uh, two, two, two goats for a sin offering for the people and a burnt offering for the people. And pre- specifically for the, uh, the goats that are for the people, he, dr- he throws lots, he casts lots to determine which one is killed as a sin offering and which one is left alive that's taken out into the wilderness later. And we'll see that in a moment. That's the overview. But beginning in, in verse 11, we see this ritual begin to take shape. And first, Aaron has to offer his own sin offering. So he takes his bull, he slaughters it, and then he, he takes a, 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 a censer and he fills it with incense And he takes coals from the the altar of burnt offering that's out in the courtyard and he puts that in his censer. And that what does that create? That creates pummels of smoke, incense smoke. And he takes the blood of the bull that's for himself in his censer that's letting out all this smoke and he enters in. He's going in. And he enters behind the veil where no man can go. And that smoke is the only thing that is going to keep him from dying because it's going to obscure the glory of God that is present over the mercy seat. And with his finger, he dips the finger into the blood of the bull and he sprinkles it seven times on top of the mercy seat to make atonement for himself. A sin offering, as you can read about in the, in the early part of, uh, of Leviticus, was about making purification, the reality that sin defiles and makes unclean to the point where it even can, can encroach all the way into the most holy place and threaten the very presence of God amongst his people. And so once a year, they have to do this, and he has to go in and first cleanse the, the tabernacle of his own impurities from his own sin. And that's what he's doing. He's sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. He's cleansing the most holy place from his uncleanness. And next, after he's done that, after he's taken care of his own uncleanness, then he can take care of the uncleanness of his people. Verse 15, Aaron offers the sin offering the people. So he goes out, he slaughters the goat that the cast, the, the, the lot that was, was uh, cast fell for the first goat that was to Yahweh, and he slaughters that goat. And he goes back in with his censer and the blood. And he does the same thing. With the smoke obscuring the glory of God, he sprinkles the blood seven times on the mercy seat, making atonement for the people, for their transgressions, for their sins. Dealing with their impurities, 
Verticus 16, 16, look specifically there. Because this really summarizes what he's doing in this. And thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. That is to say, God lives in the midst of a sinful people and if he is going to dwell there, they have to be clean. And their cleanness has to be dealt with or he's got to leave. And that's why by the time you get to the end, to the, to the book of Ezekiel, you see the glory of God lift up out of the, out of the temple and leave because that nation had become so unclean. That is the consequences of not dealing with sin, of not dealing with impurity, and the Day of, of Atonement was meant to do that. So he did the same thing in the, the most holy place, and then he goes out and he does the same thing for the whole tent of meeting. He, he, he purifies everything, all of the, the parts, all of the, the, the furniture that's inside the tent of meeting in the holy place. Then he goes out and he does the same thing in the courtyard. He sprinkles the blood on the altar. He's trying to make everything clean again. Look at verse 17. This is so important. Verse 17 says, No man, no one may enter and be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for the house and for all the assembly of Israel. In other words, there can be only one mediator. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is, what? One mediator between God and man. And that is just as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. And for anybody else to be in that tent, for anybody else to be present in there, would be a rival. It would be skirting what God has, has required, trying to get around the high priest. And so nobody else can be in there. It can just be Aaron and God. Aaron representing the people. Aaron bringing the blood in. Aaron cleansing the people from their sins. And until he comes out, Nobody dare go in or they're going to die. This is a job for Aaron and Aaron alone. And we see here a, a principle that comes out of this. Atonement's only possible by the shedding of blood. Only when the blood is shed, only when the animal is killed and the blood is applied to that mercy seat is atonement available. There's got to be the shedding of blood. There's no other way. There's no other way to be made right with God and to approach God but through the shedding of blood. And we'll come back to that. But let's keep going. After this, he presents the live goat. Starting in verse 20. He takes that goat that the, cat, the lot fell on to, to present alive. He takes his hands. Puts his hands on the head of the goat, he presses down on the head of that goat. It's not just a, he's pressing on it. 
He's putting his weight on it. That's the, the idea behind that verb. He's pressing down on it with both his hands. And on the head of that goat, he confesses the sins of all the people. All of them. He's confessing out loud. He's making it clear. We're sinners. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve mercy. But we're placing it on the head of that goat. And then he puts the goat into the hands of a person who's at the ready. And that man takes that goat into the wilderness. That word, Azazel, as you see it in the, in the text, there's a lot of debate on what that word is referring to. A lot of people think that it's the name of a goat demon that lives in the wilderness. I don't think that the case is strong for that. I think um, the best explanation is that it is a name for where this goat is being taken. A hard place is what it's talking about. It's, it's going out. But what it's doing, and this is a beautiful thing, this is the grace of God. Because who, what do we say, verse 16, who is in there witnessing Aaron do all this stuff with the blood? Who's in there? No one. So who knows if it's even effectual? Who knows if, if, if it's even worked? And so God has graciously given them this visual this visual um, reminder that what happened on the inside that was away from your eyes is really true because they see Aaron confess their sins over that goat. They see the goat leave, go out of the camp. They see the reality that their sin has been removed. It's gone. It's taken out of the camp. It's taken to the unclean place. We are clean again. What a grace gift that God gave them. We get to see it. We get to realize and experience the load that's been lifted as we see that silhouette of that man with that goat disappear across the horizon. Disappear. Our sin has been removed as east is from the west. What a beautiful sight. But it brings up another principle. Atonement's only possible through the removal of sin. It's only possible through the shedding of blood, but it's only possible through the removal of sin. Sin has to be removed. So finally, Aaron washes himself. Before he can exit the tent of meeting, he removes his garments, he washes his body, puts the garments back on, then he can offer the burnt offerings for himself and for the people find acceptance before the Lord. But verse 29, we've come to this final section of the Day of of Atonement. And it brings up a, a, a fourth truth. Entering the presence of God requires humility and penitence. It says it shall be a statute for you, verse 29, forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. And you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before Yahweh from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. So this is this permanent 
statue, this permanent ordinance that every year, every single year on the same day, the same month, you were to go through this ritual. Every year. And you were not to do any work. This is a time where God's people are to not be distracted by anything. All of their focus goes to what is going on behind the veil. You, you, you put away all the distractions of cooking dinner and, and doing your work and doing your labors. This entire day is set apart for you to focus. And focus on what? Well, that's where the afflict, afflict yourself comes. It sounds kind of... Um, um, Painful, but really that's a, a term that's uh, connected in the Old Testament with the idea of fasting. This is the only fast that is actually called for and required in Israel uh, every year. Part, any other fasting that occurs with special events that, uh, that, that weren't repeated or, or individual fasting that people did on their own. But this was the one required fast a year. And they did it because absolutely no distractions. Absolutely I want my full attention to be on what's going on, not on the pleasures of what I want or satisfactions of my own desires, even the desires of my stomach. This is a way to to humble yourself because that's the posture of the heart that recognizes who you are as a sinner. They reflected upon their sin. They reflected upon their con- the consequences of their sin. So it called for solemnity. It called for sobriety. It's, it's not a joyous festival. This was the most solemn day of the year for Israel. So it called for heartfelt introspection, humility. They saw the grace of God on display, providing a way for them to be made right with him, providing a way for them to to come into his presence. And so we see atonement, another principle. Atonement is based on the heart attitude of true humility and repentance. The chapter ends there. It ends with this call for humility. So let's, I want us to tie this together a little bit. Go back to our... um, or categories that we got introduced to in 2 Timothy 3.16. You remember what they were? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. How is it profitable? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So let's, let's ask ourselves a question. How, how does Leviticus 16 teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us for righteousness. That's what I want to think about. And as we think about the idea of entering into the presence of God and about the principles that flow out of, of, of these truths that we see here, we see some answers, answers to these categories. Like for one, We see that God is holy. There's teaching right there. There's doctrine. God is holy and his holiness is dangerous. His holiness needs to be treated with respect. We need to recognize his holiness. And along with that, we need to see the effects, the devastating effect that sin has. Sin defiles us. 
It soils us. It makes us impure, and therefore it isolates us from God. You remember um, Isaiah's response when he went and he had his vision of, of Yahweh sitting on the throne behind the veil in the most holy place. You remember that, Isaiah 6? He sees Yahweh sitting on the throne, his, the, his glory filling the tabernacle. He sees the vision of the cherubim flying around, in, uh, protecting the holiness of God. We see them, them calling out antiphonally, saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The full earth is full of his glory. We, we see that, and what does he say? Oh, cool. No. <laughs> what does he say? What's his immediate reaction and his immediate awareness went uh, right straight to his own sinfulness. He says, woe is me, which is uh, actually, literally, you could translate that, I'm disintegrating. I'm done for because my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. I've seen what I shouldn't see. I've intruded somewhere I shouldn't be. He understood the nature of God, the holiness of God, and what the, his sinfulness meant for him. He should die. And it's only by the grace of God that a cherub went down and grabbed a coal from the, 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 the altar of burnt offering and touched it to his lips that he could be clean and he could stand in God's presence. And that's exactly what's happening on the Day of Atonement. We see God as holy. We see sin for what it is, defiling, making impure, and making us unable to enter into the presence of God, making, God, making it so God can't even dwell among his people. But we also see this. We see that in the Day of Atonement, God has graciously provided access to himself. Graciously. It's amazing. This is the gospel, folks. God is holy. We are sinful. But God has made the way to him clear. But access is only available through one who is divinely ordained to represent us, right? That's another principle we get out of this. We can't represent ourselves. We have to be represented by somebody else. And access is only possible through full atonement. And full atonement is only possible when blood is shed. All this is doctrine, folks. All this is truth and correction flowing out of a text that many have dismissed as irrelevant today. We also see that no man is righteous. Even man's, Israel's representative, right, Their high priest had to first offer a sacrifice for himself. Not even he was righteous enough to stand in the presence of God without blood. And we see the real atonement and forgiveness is based on an attitude of humility and repentance. That's that's the doctrine that's flowing out of this. That's the training in righteousness. And when we look at at the book of Hebrews... The book of Hebrews sees the Day of Atonement as signifying the principles and the reality of the death of Jesus Christ. It sees in the death of Christ everything that the Day of Atonement was pointing to. The Day of Atonement 
When Jesus died, Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle was just a a copy of the real tabernacle in heaven. And he entered into the real tabernacle and made propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. Hebrews 9.24 Jesus acted as our perfect high priest. He didn't have to atone for his own sins. He didn't have to enter in with the blood of a, of a bull to make atonement for himself first. He was the perfect representative for his people. And so he entered in as our high priest. But even more than that, he entered in as our own sin offering because he came in not with the blood of bulls and goats, which the book of Hebrews says can never take away sins, but he entered in with what? His own blood. He was the offering and the offerer. He was the high priest and he was the bull. He was the sacrifice. And with his perfect blood, he purified forever. Forever. Because Hebrews also says Jesus accomplished once for all time what Israel had to enact every single year. Every single year this had to happen and it only dealt with the sins that had happened during the previous year. And then it all starts over again. The slate is wiped and then the, the, the uncleanness piles up, the sins pile up and you've got to deal with it again. Year after year after year after year. But, God, but Jesus entered in one time and everything was accomplished. Everything. We will never have to observe another day of atonement. It's a holy past tense event for us. And then finally, Jesus secured for us eternal forgiveness, just temporal fellowship with God. So the book of Hebrews sees and recognizes the significance of Leviticus, specifically the day of atonement, but doesn't end there. And this is what I want to close with. It reveals that what Christ accomplished on the final day of atonement at Golgotha 2,000 years ago, it has direct implications for your life and my life as Christians. It doesn't just stop with a day 2,000 years ago. It calls you to act. It calls you to act. So turn with me to Hebrews 10. We'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 10. After the writer of the Hebrews has expounded for four chapters on the significance of the Day of of Atonement, this is what he calls his readers to, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what should we do? Well, first, we approach God with confidence. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is to say, the day of atonement, 
gives you boldness to come to God because the way has been opened up forever through Christ. It gives you boldness, as he says, to boldly approach the throne of grace. Are you bold as a Christian? Do you enter into the Lord's presence with confidence? Do you go to him for fellowship? Do you go to him for mercy, for grace? Do you pray with confidence and boldness? That is what is accomplished for you on the Day of Atonement. It gives you boldness, not timidity. So draw near. Don't shy away. Draw near because the way has been made clear through the blood of Christ. It also gives us endurance to persevere. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That is to say, the Day of Atonement gives us the energy and the endurance to keep going, to keep going through trials, to keep going through temptations. Whatever comes, the Day of Atonement is the catalyst to keep going and hold on and persevere and not give up and not lose faith to the very end. You don't give up because of Jesus, because of what he accomplished. That's that's the driver. So don't give up. And finally, it gives us a motivation to serve, to serve others. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is to say, the Day of Atonement gets us the catalyst and the drive to serve, to encourage, to get in each other's lives and encourage each other. Keep going, keep going. Work hard. Work hard for the glory of the Lord. Yes, do good. I want to encourage you in that and you encourage me because of what Christ accomplished. That's what, that's what the Day of Atonement does. It's not a past tense event. It's a past tense event with absolute consequences on us today. The sad truth of the Old Testament is that Israel failed. They failed to recognize the significance of the Day of Atonement. They failed. They failed to recognize the holiness of God. They failed to recognize the effects of their sin. They failed to see the need for atonement. They failed to see their, their need for humility and repentance. And worst of all, they failed to see what Leviticus 16 pointed to. The need for a better sacrifice, a better high priest, a, a sufficient atonement. And that something that could only be brought about by the Messiah. They failed. They failed. They were blind to it. And what does Paul say? First, uh, First Corinthians 10.6. These things took place as examples for us. Let's take from their example. Let's not neglect the Old Testament as Christians. Let's not neglect the book of Leviticus. Let's treasure it. As that which points to Christ, teaches us truth, reproves, corrects us, trains us in righteousness. Let's never be as a church or as believers unhitched from the Old Testament. Amen?